Okay, we finished up uh, Mark's gospel. I had contemplated, well, I'm going to tell you, when you study a book like that, I mean, when you're going through, I find all kinds of things about, I want to go back and do it again. Not, not the whole book, but I thought, we've been there for so long, but there are, other, there are things maybe we'll come back and visit at another time, but uh, I, I really did think long and hard about that. Um, <clears throat> last Monday morning, we laid to rest the body of Dale Carter at, down at the Chattanooga National Cemetery, and um, it, was a, it was a wonderful time. Uh, the blessing for Mary was Bill Summers had set this whole thing up for her, and she didn't have to do anything with it, so it worked out great for her. The problem was when we got there, we didn't know exactly what was going to happen, and she had asked me to speak, and, and so I was, I was ready. But then we also found out that the, because it's a military service, they had a guy all prepared there. And so we were kind of like both, you know, well, we got this and both of us. I said, well, why don't you go ahead and go first, assuming that he was going to cut his message short and I'd have, he'd have about half and I'd have, have half. No. He had about that much and I had about this much. But, so... What I'm going to share with you is what I shared in just a few brief moments uh, at the end of that service from John chapter 11, and then we're going to move on from there. So if you want to turn over to John chapter 11, you know that's the passage that has the shortest verse in the New Testament, I guess in the whole Bible, right? John what? 11? Come on, all you, huh? Huh? Yeah, I love John eleven thirty five. Everybody's supposed to know that one. Peyton, you know that one? No? Mama's going to teach you John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. Shortest, shortest verse in the Bible. That's not what we're about this morning. In the matter of the burial service for Dale, we read John 11, verses 25, 26, and 27. So I'm going to read those. Jesus said to her, that is to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And you'll notice the two articles, the resurrection, the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. What a promise. What a promise. Does Jesus need to say any more than the fact that though he may die, he shall live. And that's future. But in verse 26, it says, And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Wow, what a question to ask Martha. Do you believe this? Well, here's, here's what we brought out with regard to this, this verse. And it's hidden in our English translations, most of them anyway unless you have a very, very literal translation. The first thing you'll see here is this word never. And in the Greek text, it's a double negative. There's ou and may. No, no, not ever. He shall not, no, not ever, no way, under any circumstances, die. Well, that's a strange statement when you're at the grave 
of a guy named Lazarus, and he's already been buried, and he's been there four days now. And Martha said, Lord, he stinks by now. So why would he say such a thing? Well, underlying this text that you don't see is an expression that speaks about something far beyond just not dying. But it literally says, or maybe I should say more literally says, he shall never, never die into the age, or unto, or to the age. Now, we're going to find out later this expression is not an unusual one to a Hebrew ear. That any Jew hearing Jesus talk about the age to come would have known exactly what he meant. And of course, we here understand and know that he was speaking about the coming age in which Messiah would rule the earth, that he would be king over all the earth. And so we sing the songs about Jesus is coming again, he's coming again, and he's coming to rule over this earth. And so when he was speaking these things to Martha, he, when, when he says, he who believes in me, uh, or whoever lives and believes in me, shall never, ever die unto the age. Do you believe this, Martha? Now watch what she answered in verse 27. She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. This is her confession. This is what you and I, every single one of us, need to do in our individual life, is confess Christ. And to know that this promise that he gave about life for the coming age applies to us as well. Now, I want to share with you or read with you a more, a, a, I want to say more literal, just a translation observing the Greek tenses. So you get the idea here. Now, um, listen to this one. Jesus then told Martha, all those living and believing in me on a constant, continuous basis cannot, in any way, die into the age. That is, into the age of the Messiah. Now, those verbs that talk about continuously believing and continuously living. So you understand the difference? It's not a static, one-time belief that Jesus is talking about here. It's not like, well... Ten years ago, I asked Jesus to save me, and I'm good to go, guys. I die, I'm going to heaven be with Jesus. No, he's speaking about the one who is living for Jesus, has the promise, the assurance, if you will, of life in the coming age. And that's why he gives the strong double negative, that if you are believing and living for Christ, there is no way in this world that you will not enter 
into the Messiah's rule and share in that rule with him. And that ought to be the goal of your Christian life. That should be the fulfillment of your hope in Christ. Now, what we find out is is that um, when Jesus was calling Martha's attention to this about living for him, living out their daily life, you know, Martha's answer, yes, Lord, she understood exactly what he was saying. She knew what the promise was. Now, this morning, we want to expand on this. We want to go beyond just this one statement. And what you'll discover in all in John's gospel is the same construction that we find here shall never, never under any circumstance something unto the age occurs five times from the lips of Jesus and one time in a negative way from Peter. Now, the reason I said shall never under any circumstances because they don't all say die. As a matter of fact, only one other one does in actuality. Turn back with me now to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, we're looking at the woman at the well here, the Samaritan woman that Jesus met as he was passing through, stopping by Jacob's well to have a drink, and as his custom, he asked her to get him a drink. So, that takes place in verse 7. Verse 9 says, uh, why are you asking a Samaritan woman to get you a drink? Don't you Jews not have anything to do with us? That's my paraphrase. Verse 10, Jesus responded by saying, well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you'd have asked him and he would have given you living water. Living water. What did he mean by that? Well, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? So her mind was on a glass of water, if you will. Now, the water in the well was not living water. It didn't move like water in a stream. Living water in the mind of a, of a Jew, a Hebrew, or anyone in the Middle East knew that you were talking about water that was moving, running water. It was in a stream or a fountain or whatever. Water in a well wasn't doing that. So she understood about the well and the living water. And she says, are, uh, are you greater than our father Jacob and so on? Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. Now, of course, we want to focus on the words, never thirst. You shall never 
thirst. And we find here that the word never is again a double negative. You will never, never, ever thirst. There's no possible way that if you drink from the living water that I give you, that you will ever thirst again. But again, if you look at the underlying text here, you'll find that it says you will never, ever again under any circumstances thirst unto the age. That is, unto the age of Messiah. Now, I think we've been through enough Old Testament and New Testament. We know again the age here. The age is referring to the age when the promised Messiah would come and he would deliver Israel, and she would become the prominent nation uh, amongst the nations of the world, and the Messiah would rule over the world, and he would bring in complete and total righteousness and peace. Well, everybody wanted to be a part of that. So how do you get to be in there? How do you get in to this wonderful kingdom? Because... You remember Jesus promised Martha concerning Lazarus, he shall live again. He shall live. He will experience resurrection. So in that connection, we understand that resurrection is directly connected to experiencing the life of the age to come in the promise that he gave to Martha. And so what he's promising this Samaritan woman is the same thing, only he's using a different metaphor. Rather than speaking of death, he's speaking here of living water. Living water brings life, refreshment. And he says here, it will become in him a fountain of water. The word fountain there is means something that jumps up. It's like a bubbling fountain. It'll be flowing over, running water. And it springs up into what? Well, it says everlasting life in our English translation, but again, the actual rendering is it will spring up into life for the coming age of King Jesus when he comes to rule. So this was a wonderful promise that Jesus was giving this Samaritan woman. Now, she said, sir, give me this water. Martha said, sir, I believe that thou art the Christ. This woman said, sir, give me this water. Now, when Jesus told her, I have water to give you, that will ensure that you will enter into this coming age, her response was, I want that water. Could you give it to me? That I may not thirst nor come here to draw. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband. Well, there was an issue that had to be dealt with. You remember when dealing with Martha, it was he who is continuously believing and constantly in a continuous state of living for Jesus, living for God, walking obediently, or in righteousness. This woman had an issue to deal with, and it was concerning her 
present guy that she was living with because he was indeed not her husband. If you skip down to verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ, the anointed one. He's already been anointed as king. I know that he's coming, the Messiah. And what is he going to do if she knew he was coming? My point is, is she knows exactly what Jesus is telling her about. She understands what he's saying regarding this promise of life in the coming age. And so she says there, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And of course, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Well, the woman goes in then, immediately into town, and shares these things, questioning, could this be the Christ? Turn with me to John chapter 8, and let's look at another passage. It speaks of the same kind of thing. John chapter 8. Now, this is a long chapter, and we surely won't be going through the whole chapter. But a major part of this chapter has to do with a confrontation with the Pharisees, and a major part of the discussion has to do with Father Abraham. So, if we just begin with... Um, oh, boy. Let's be, we'll begin with verse 31, I guess, um, where Jesus said to those Jews who believed him. Now, what you need to know is there's a group of Jews here that Jesus is teaching. So you got his disciples, you have the Jews, and then you have the Pharisees. Now, the Jews that believed on him, he says, if to them, if you abide, and the word abide means to remain or stay in my word. Then he says, you are my disciples indeed. If you look the word indeed up, you'll find it means truly. You are truly then my disciples. You cannot be a disciple if you're not obedient to his word. You can be a believer and you might believe in Jesus, but you cannot be a disciple, a believing disciple, if you're not obedient to his word. And so in verse 32, he says, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Well, you can be assured that they understood the promise he was making them. Well, verse 33, he says, We're Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be free? We've never been slaves. How can you be telling us that we're going to be made free? Well, verse 34, he says, Assuredly, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. So if you're living in sin, as was the woman at the well, by the way, you cannot be a disciple. And that's what Jesus was telling her. You want this water? Let's deal with the thing about your husband. You want to be free? You better stop sinning, because if you are in sin, then you're a slave, and you're a slave to sin. And notice in verse 35, and 
Now, this, is, this is, gets part of the crux of the whole issue here. He says, and a slave does not abide or remain in the house forever. Or he does not remain in the house to the age. But a son abides to the age. A son does. A son who was born into the family had nothing to worry about as long as he was favorable towards his father and obedient. But a slave living in the house, what was he? When he died, did his kinfolk get an inheritance? No, they were still slaves. They were still in the house and they were still slaves. But the son, the huios here, the huios son, he had the promise of abiding or remaining to the coming age of the Messiah. Now, that's, a, that's quite powerful. I want to read another translation here. It says, now the slave is not remaining or dwelling or abiding within the house, that is, having no perpetual place in the household, onto the age. The son continuously remains or dwells or abides on into the age. So here we have this promise about a son remaining or abiding unto the coming age of the Messiah. Question is, how do you become a son? How do you become this kind of son that he's talking about here? Turn with me back to Matthew's gospel in chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, if you're thinking ahead, and verse 9. And we know all about the, the instruction that Jesus was giving to his disciples and the blessed and the blessed and the blessed and, and so on. Verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. If you want to be known as a son of God, and you're a disciple, then being a peacemaker, rather than stirring up strife, if you're a peacemaker, that will result in you being claimed or called a son of God. Now, you can't leave all the rest of them out. They all fit into the whole circle here. We're simply focused on one element. I want you to turn over to chapter 6 now. Chapter 6, and, um, well, I thought I was... Oh, no, I'm, still, I'm sorry. Chapter 5. Stay in chapter 5. In chapter 5... which is not what I want either. So I don't even know what. I wrote something down wrong here. I think it's in chapter 6. It is chapter 6, and it's not, not the verse 43 that I was looking for. It is... Um, somewhere in here. Oh, if I had my other Bible, I could lay my finger on it right here, but I don't have it. Where's the passage? Now, seek first the kingdom of God. That's... No, that's 633. That's not what I wanted. Um, 
Okay. Yeah, here we go. I believe. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's the verse that I was mentioning, but that's not the one I'm looking for. I thought that was it. Um, all right. I'm going to move on. I don't, I don't think so. I thought, oh yeah, that's it. Good man. You're the one founder. Who got that? Juan. Bless you. That's the one I wanted. Where Jesus said in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Of course, he said, love your neighbor as yourself. But I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father. Now notice that, may be. Notice the potentiality there. You may be sons of your Father in heaven. In other words, simple obedience to what Jesus was teaching to his own disciples here in the Sermon on the Mount about blessing your enemies, doing good to them, praying for those that spitefully use you and persecute you, and those things would result in you becoming a son of God. And the underlying message here is that you may be sons, again, sons indeed, truly sons, a real son in other words. This is what a true son of God is. Now, Having said all that, um, on down in, um, we're back over at John chapter 8 now, and he goes on discussing then with, these, uh, with the Jews concerning Abraham. The discussion continues on, and as I said, it, it's a lengthy discussion. But he goes on to mention to them in verse 51, he says, Most assuredly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Now, here's the same expression that we saw concerning with Lazarus. He says, you shall never see death. It's the same expression we already saw. You shall never, never, double negation, you will not in any wise see death. Now, the word see there is a word that you know, there's several, several words in the New Testament translated to see. And this has the idea of to be a spectator, to gaze upon the whole idea of death. In other words, it's not something that would preoccupy you. You know, if, if you didn't understand, if you didn't know about the things that Jesus is sharing with the woman at the well and Martha, and obviously Lazarus and Mary understood. What hope would anyone have about resurrection from the dead? It's something that you would indeed ponder and think about, or 
as he says it here, gaze upon it. But he tells us here that with regard to this, if you are keeping my word, Jesus says, then you will never, never, ever in any circumstance have any reason to gaze upon the whole idea of death. Why? Because you'll never see it. It's something that you can be assured of. You will never have to be concerned about it. I hope that Jesus will resurrect me and bring me up to share in his kingdom. No, this is a promise of assurance. That if you have kept his word, you will. And it's yours. Now the Jews, in verse 52, said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead. Well, they're thinking physical death. And the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. They repeat the words back to him. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead and the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus said, well, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Verse 55, he says, what you have not, yet you have not known him, but I know him. And I say, if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. Oh, man. Hold your finger right there. Now, just in my Bible, I can look across the page at verse 44. In the same chapter. Chapter 8, verse 44. Notice what Jesus tells them. He says, you are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own for he is a liar and the father of it. But notice the contrast in verse 45. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. One is a liar one tells the truth. And yet they wouldn't believe him. And so Jesus told him in verse 55, if I, don't, if I don't confess that I know him, and if I would say I don't know him, then I'd be a liar like you are. But I do know him. And keep his word. He expects nothing less from you and I. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I was there before Abraham ever existed. In the Amplified Version, and John 8 and verse 5, I have to turn the page back there, but if you, I don't think it's verse 5, verse 51, I'm sorry, John 8, 51. It says there in the Amplified Version, it states verse 51 this way, I assure you and most solemnly say to you, if anyone keeps my word, 
by living in accordance with my message, he will indeed never, ever see and experience death. Now, the one thing that the, even the Amplified Version left out is to the age. But they emphasize the double negation. They emphasize the constant, present tense obedience and belief in Jesus. Now, the message of the church at large today is, all you have to do to know you're going to go to heaven is just believe in Jesus and accept him as your Savior. And to know that he's forgiven you of your sins, done deal. It's over. How I live my life after that bears little impact, if any, on the fact that I'm, when I die, I'll go to be with Jesus forever and ever and ever and ever. Well, we're not questioning the fact that that would be the case. What we're emphasizing is that before that period of time ever occurs, there is going to be an age upon this earth when this present age closes and the coming age begins when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom that there will be those who will be abundantly and richly rewarded because of their obedience and their walk with Jesus. So when you read the rest of the New Testament, you read the Sermon on the Mount, you read all the instructions that Jesus gave his disciples, if you read what Paul and Peter and James and John all had to say about, and Jude, by the way, Christian living, godliness, being holy, being separated, and all the other things that he instructs us in, that is what he means by abide in my word or keep my word. He that abides in me. He that remains in me. What's he saying to us? Once we have acknowledged the truth of the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one promised from all the prophets, all the way back to Moses, Jesus said, it demands that we surrender our life then to him. That is why we address Jesus as Lord. Did you know the rest of the pagan world who they addressed as Lord? Caesar. The ruler of the known world. Was any Christian going to call Caesar Lord? Not if he was an obedient disciple living for the Lord Jesus, and knowing the promises that he had given and the promise concerning the coming age in which he would abundantly and richly reward his faithful disciples. If you turn back to Second Peter, we'll close with, with this, uh, this little word. It won't take but a minute or so. In 2 Peter chapter 1, I think Jeff was here not too long ago, or partly anyway, 
And, um, you know, Peter here tells us in verse 5 how we are to react and live in our Christian life. These are the kinds of things that he wants us to inculcate or build up or grow in our own life as we follow Jesus. And he says here that we're to give all diligence to add to your faith virtue, and we're supposed to bring in knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Now this is a, like a, a musical crescendo. It starts down here, and it just builds, and he ends with love. But he also tells us, if we do these things, he says, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. And I think he could have just as well have said, you won't be barren or unfruitful when you stand before him at his judgment seat. And so consequently then, if you look down at verse, verses 10 and 11, he says, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do all of these things, and again, he's talking about if you are doing these things continually, presently, you will never stumble. By the way, did you find it interesting? You know, at one point, all the disciples stumbled. Remember when we just got through preaching through Mark? And Jesus said, you're all going to leave me and forsake me. And they did. And it says they, they all were offended, stumbled. But they came back. Peter came back stronger than ever. And you can too. And so he then says, if you do this, so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly, or as some translations say, richly, into the everlasting, the age-lasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah. The disciples got it. They understood. Following the resurrection, you find obedience on the part of the disciples. Now, we had that little hiccup you know, with Peter and, and, and Paul and the Jews. But they came back. They may have stumbled, but they never lost faith. They never lost faith that Jesus was truly resurrected from the grave, that he was alive, and that he was on his throne at the right hand of the Father. And somebody made a, an astounding statement the other day that just knocked me for a loop. Back when we were preaching in Mark's gospel, we were dealing with a, that passage that says Jesus didn't know the day or the hour. And we were talking about his humanity. You know, I, I'm guilty as this as anybody. When I think about Jesus sitting on the throne at the right hand of God, I just think about God. But this guy said, did you know there's a man sitting at the right hand of God today? His name is Jesus. You remember, we, we emphasize this fact that in the, in, when we talk about doctrine, you develop what you believe about the Bible and what we think the Bible teaches us and says about Jesus, that he was not 
50% God, 50% man, but he's 100% God and 100% man. And because of that, you can confidently say there's a man sitting at the right hand of God. The God-man. And he's our high priest. He sits there to intercede on our behalf. He is there that Hebrew says we can run to. At any moment in time that we have a need and we feel like we're stumbling and we're not going to make it, and we got our eyes set on that goal and that kingdom, we can run to his throne and plead for mercy. And you know what he says? He'll give it every time. Every time, without fail, he will provide it. There is not one single reason or excuse why any of us cannot attain to that coming kingdom. But I can tell you this, it demands, it demands this right here. You get on your knees and you bow before the Lord and you know that this is my place. He is my Lord. I'm his slave. Now I'm going to quit with this. And I'll never, never, ever forget or let get out of my mind that when mm, over 45 years ago, when the Lord began to deal with me, and I went to church and rededicated, I often say, but in actuality, I dedicated my life to the Lord. I had accepted Him as my Savior about eight or nine years before. And when, when I went forward at church, we had, the church was without a pastor, so they had an interim there. And of course, he didn't know me. Uh, most everybody in the church knew who I was. But so when I came down, he said, what are you coming for? And I said, I want to dedicate my life to the Lord Jesus. And he said, okay, and stand right here. And then, so he prayed. And then he said, okay, all you want to come down and give him, the, uh, this guy, the right hand of fellowship. That was it. <laughs> I walked away from church feeling so empty when I went home, I just had this compelling urge that I needed to go pray. He didn't, they never even prayed with me. So I went home and went upstairs to my bedroom that my wife and I still sleep. Well, she sleeps here about every time now. I, I usually go downstairs and sleep in the recliner. There's no heat upstairs at my mom's house, by the way, in the old farmhouse. It's cold. Uh, I remember getting up beside that bed. And I can remember, this is what goes through my mind, that it was like all of myself drained out of my body, and I had to literally force myself to bend my knees before God. Now, I wanted to do it, but I'm telling you, there was the most strangest feeling came over me when I did that. But you know what it was? I didn't really understand it all. But it was a full surrender. Even then, it was a full surrender to Christ. Everything else that happened after that has been a matter of learning, growing, and maturing to get where I am today. And I can tell you that I wouldn't take 
I, John and I were just talking out in the hallway. There is no way in this world I would ever want to go back and be 20 again, or 18, or 25, or 30, or any of it. I'm happy and glad I'm at the age that I am right now because of what God has done in my life. And he'll do it for all of us. He'll do it for everyone. And I look forward with anticipation, with eager anticipation, to that coming age and being resurrected from that grave and laying my eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we, we do want to thank you for the love of Jesus Christ towards us, the beauty of his word, the wonder and the majesty of one who would give himself in the way he did on the cross and dying for us. Dear God, I pray, God in heaven, I pray, that you would do a mighty work in our hearts, that you would visit with us as you visited with the saints of old. And we'll be very, very careful to give you all the thanks and the praise. And we ask you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.